I'm like uh, five or six years old. My father says to me, come take a ride with me. So I get in the vehicle and we go and ride out to this person's house that my father knows. And she had dogs. One of her dogs had puppies. She and my father say, pick out one. Pick out one, you know, I get to have a dog. My father had not told my mother. We bring the dog home. Of course, my mom has a fit. She doesn't want the dog in the house. She's not going to come outside, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm playing with, with, with my new dog on the porch. My mom came to the door to call me to come in for dinner. And then the little dog came running out, excited to see her, and ran to sniff her ankles or whatever. And when the little puppy ran up to her, my mom jumped out of fear. And it threw a disc in her back. She was in back pain from that day until she died in 1986. The next morning when I woke up, my mom had gone to the hospital. First thing I'd go to do is go, go see my puppy. My puppy was gone. My dad had taken the dog back. I couldn't have it. And uh, I cried for days, you know. Uh, I, I still think about that puppy today. Three or four years later, um, I'd gone over to this girl's house, a friend of my mom's. My mom and her were going shopping. And so I was taken over there to be babysat. Her nanny was there or whatever. So they had a dog, the German Shepherd, and the dog was locked outside on the balcony. And the lady specifically told me, do not go out there and play with the dog, Daryl. The, do the dog is very mean, it will bite. So they left. So little girl and I are playing in the living room and I said, why would your doggy bite me? Why is your doggy so mean? The little girl said, my doggy's not mean. And of course she goes out there and, and the dog's like licking all over her and all excited to see her because the dog wanted to come in. And so I figured, well, the mom lied to me. So I opened the door. That German Shepherd tore me up. The nanny and the cook had to come rushing out and pull the thing off me. I was warned and I did not heed the warning and I got my, you know, my, myself chewed up. That did not change my attitude towards dogs. It changed my attitude towards that particular dog, but I still love dogs. From Radiotopia, you're listening to Love and Radio. I'm Nick Vanderkolk. Today's episode, The Silver Dollar. Baby, when I met you, there was peace I know. I set out to get you. In 1983, country music had made a resurgence in this country. So I joined a country band. I was the only black guy in the band, and consequently, usually the only black guy in many of the places where we played. Well, there was this truck stop in a place called Frederick, Maryland. Truck stop had a restaurant and had a motel. In the bottom of the motel was this lounge called the Silver Dollar Lounge. And it was basically an all-white lounge. Black people did not go in there. Well, here I was in the Silver Dollar Lounge. And first time I played there, I came off the bandstand. 
after the first set, and I was walking across the dance floor to sit with some of my bandmates. And this white gentleman, probably in his mid to late 40s, gets up from his table and walks across the bandstand from behind, puts his arm around my shoulder. And I stopped and turned around, looked to see who's touching me. And he says, I really like your all's music. This is the first time I ever heard a black man play piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. I had no idea where this guy was coming from. And I naively and innocently asked him, where did you think Jerry Lee Lewis learned how to play? What are you talking about? Well, Jerry Lee learned how to play that style from black, blues, and boogie-woogie piano players. That's where rockabilly and rock and roll came from. Oh, no, 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 no. Jerry Lee invented that. I never heard no black man play like that until, until you. I know Jerry Lee Lewis personally. He's a good friend of mine. I've known him since I was 13 years old. He's told me himself where he learned how to play. Or the guy didn't buy it. But he was fascinated with me, and he wanted to buy me a drink. Now, I don't drink, but I agreed to go back to his table and have a cranberry juice. He says, you know, this is the first time I ever sat down and had a drink with a black man. I asked him, I said, why? And he didn't answer me. He stared at the tabletop. And his buddy elbowed him in the ribs and said, tell him, tell him, tell him. Now he says, I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan. I started laughing. Okay, this guy thinks I'm jerking him around about Jerry Lee Lewis, so he's going to jerk me around about the Klan. While I'm laughing, he goes inside his pocket, pulls out his wallet, and hands me his Klan card. His looked like it had a, um, a Klansman on horseback, and then on the other side was this red circle with a white cross and a red blood drop in the center, which is the Ku Klux Klan insignia. It's called a Mayoke, or a blood drop emblem. I stopped laughing, because I recognized that stuff. You know, this is for real. I gave him back his card, and we talked about some other things. The guy gave me his phone number. He wanted me to call him anytime I was to come back to this bar with this band because he wanted to bring his buddies, right? His, his clan buddies to see this black guy play piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. We were on a rotation at that club every six weeks, you know, with other bands. So I'd call the guy like on a Wednesday or a Thursday and say, hey man, um, I'm gonna be at the uh, Silver Dollar, come on out. He'd come. And he'd bring his clansmen and clanswomen friends. And they'd gather around and watch me play. They'd get out on the dance floor and dance. There were some who didn't want to meet me. You know, they were kind of standoffish, just like, you know, watch me from afar. But I knew it was them. Others, you know, were, were curious and they wanted to, you know, I mean, they shook my hand and all that kind of stuff. Well, anyway, this went on about every six weeks until the end of 83, at which time, um, I quit the clan. I mean, I quit the clan. I quit the band. Get that right. Freudian slip there. Okay. <laughs> um, I quit the band and I went back to playing rock and roll and blues and, you know, whatever genre was popular in 84. And so, you know, I lost contact with the guy. Say the clan preaches and thrives on violence. This particular shirt here is was given to me by a clanswoman who wore it. And 
it depicts a caricature of Martin Luther King with the crosshairs, the, t- the bullseye targeted on his forehead, and it mocks his I have a dream speech. And it says, our dream came true. You know? Yeah. Pretty. De- it's, hard, it's hard not to have a visceral reaction to it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's pretty despicable. But this is what we're dealing with. This is our country, man. So you wonder why I do what I do? I'm not going to ignore it. You know, I mean, there are those out there who will talk the talk, but I'll walk the walk. Did your family or friends ever go, Daryl, you can't be doing this. Like, you're going to get yourself killed. Well, yeah, everybody did. But, um, I, you know, I, I had this need to do it. Back in the early 1960s, I would attend international schools. Overseas, my classes were filled with people from all over the world. Germany, Nigeria, Russia, Japan, France, Italy. You know, that was how I grew up overseas in the school system. To me, it was just the norm. But at the same time that I was being quote unquote multicultural, my peers back home here in my own country, the the, uh, United States, were either going to newly integrated schools or still segregated ones. Back then it was just black kids and white kids or black kids or white kids. So I was 10 years old, 1968, in the fourth grade. We'd just returned from overseas. And we were living in the town of Belmont, Massachusetts, which is a, you know, a suburb of Boston. And I was one of two black children in the entire school. Well, so all of my friends, consequently, you know, were white. And many of my guy friends uh, were members of the Cub Scouts, and they invited me to join. So I joined the Scouts. On Scout Day, we had a march from Lexington to Concord, Massachusetts, to commemorate the ride of Paul Revere. And my den mother uh, gave me the American flag to carry. I was the only black scout in this march. And somewhere down the parade route, as I'm marching with, with my fellow scouts, carrying the American flag, I began getting hit by uh, bottles and rocks and uh, soda pop cans uh, that were being thrown by uh, white spectators, uh, some of them over on the sidewalk. And it was uh, kids and adults alike. My immediate reaction was, those people over there don't like the scouts. <laughs> you, know, you know? And... I didn't realize that I was the only scout getting hit until my den mother, my cub master, and my pack leader all came back and huddled over me with their bodies and escorted me out of the danger, you know? And I kept saying, why? Why are they hitting me? And all they would do is go, shh, move along, Daryl, move along, it'll be okay. So they never answered my question. So when I got home later that day, my mom and dad were cleaning me up and putting band-aids on me and asking me, you know, how did you fall down and get all scraped up? And I said, I didn't fall down. I told them what happened. For the first time in my life, my parents sat me down and explained to me why I was being targeted this way. Having gone to school with people from all over the world, every color imaginable, it was incomprehensible to me that someone who knew absolutely nothing about me would want to inflict pain upon me for no other reason than the color of my skin. They didn't know anything about me. I hadn't done anything. 
And I literally thought they were lying to me. Tenth grade, 1974. I'm going to school in Rockville, Maryland. We just returned from overseas. And we had a class called the POTC, which stood for Problems of the 20th Century. And we had a great teacher. And he would bring in, you know, various people from different walks of life to express their views, oftentimes controversial. Well, on this one particular day, he had the leader of the American Nazi Party come to our class. You could not do that today in a high school. You know, all this political correctness, which to me is a bunch of bull spit, if I may. So uh, anyway, on this day in 1974, Matt Cole and his right-hand lieutenant came to my school. I believe in God's call to race, to do his work in history. The Jew is using the black as muscle against you, and you don't have a chance. And they stood well, at the front of the class, espousing all these point? views of a white supremacy. How, how many black kids were in the class? In the class, just me and another guy. And then Matt Cole looked at me and pointed at me and pointed at the other black guy and said, we're going to ship you back to Africa. I lived in Africa. I lived there for, for, for 10 years, you know, on assignment, you know, with the U.S. Embassy. You know, ship me back there, you know. He made like a sweeping motion with his finger and said, and all you Jews out there, you're going back to Israel. I'm 15 years old. I'm just sitting here looking at this fool. And somebody piped up and said, what happens if they don't go? And Matt Cole said, oh, they have no choice. If they do not leave voluntarily, they will be exterminated in the upcoming race war. That was the very first time that I'd heard the term race war. And he went on and on, and then the class was over. From that day forward, that was the turning point in my life, I began collecting everything I could get my hands on that dealt with white supremacy, black supremacy, anti-Semitism, the Nazis in Germany, the neo-Nazis over here, the Ku Klux Klan, things like that. Music is my profession, but learning more about racism on, on all sides of the tracks was my obsession. The question that I had back then was, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? That question stayed with me. Nineteen eighty-eight, a friend of mine was uh, performing up in Baltimore. My girlfriend and I, your white girlfriend, yeah, dashed up to Baltimore as quickly as we could Sunday evening, about twelve forty after midnight, right, and. There were signs that were posted that said, customer parking only, violators will be towed, okay? So we got out, walked across the street to the club. The guy was just finishing up. He was on his last song, just finishing up. Went up there, shook hands, you know, greeted him. You know, we hadn't seen each other in a long time. Chatted for about five minutes. Went back out. This tow truck pulls onto the parking lot, and I run up and tap on his window as he's backing up and say, hey, 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 you know, that's my car. I'm, I'm leaving now. 
he ignored me and backed right up against my car. And he gets out. He says, I'm taking the car. I said, well, there are other cars here. I want you to take somebody else's car. I'm here now. I'm leaving. He goes, well, I'm taking your car. So I'm arguing with the guy. And he's saying, well, you can give me $80 and I'll let you go. So we're like, you know, well, I don't have $80. And my, and my girlfriend's saying, well, here, I, 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 can, I can write you a check or give you my credit. Nope, it has to be cash. So there were two cop cars sitting on the parking lot. And it was a lady cop and a, and a male cop, both white. And they saw us park. They walk over and they're like, so what's going on here? As though they didn't know. So the cop looks at the guy and says, so what do you want to do? And the guy says, well, I told him, give me $80. I'll let him go. So, so, so the male cop says, well, I suggest you give him $80. And I said, look, I got you know over $10,000 worth of equipment in my car, which I did. My PA system, keyboard or drums or whatever else. And I said, you can't take my car. And the male cop grabbed me and slammed me up against the back of my car. And the lady cop automatically kneed me in my ribs. And when I bent over, they grabbed my arms and handcuffed me. My girlfriend said, hey, hey, why are you doing this to him? And the, the lady cop grabbed my girlfriend and threw her down on the ground and called her a whore and a bitch. They handcuffed her too, and they called the paddy wagon. And I said, you know, you all have no right to do this to us. Paddy wagon driver says, oh, you think you want to be a cop? You can tell me my rights? Takes off his badge and throws it at me, and it strikes me in the chest. He goes, go ahead, pin it on. Now, of course, I can't pin anything on. I'm cuffed behind my back. And so he reaches in, puts up his badge off the, off the floor and says, I, I, I didn't think you wanted to be a cop. Was it, was it an eye-opening experience for her? Oh, absolutely it was. Sure, she had experienced racism, you know, dating me. Some of her friends didn't like it. But then going to jail for it, you know, you know definitely took a toll on the relationship and we broke up. She made a statement she would never date another black person. Not because she became racist or anything like that, but it was just too hard. She was gonna run away from the problem. While she did not accept racism and was a strong advocate against it, she was gonna give up. I want an answer to my question. How can you hate me when you don't even know me? So, I'm gonna interview all these racists. I need to write a book. So I chose the Klan because man, I could have cho chose you know, the Nazis, but I had made some kind of relationship with this Klansman. So I'm gonna track down that Klansman from the Silver Dollar Lounge. He had moved. He did not have a phone, but he had an address. So unannounced, I went by his apartment one evening, okay? I knock on the door, right, in this hallway, and um, he opens the door. He says, Daryl, wh what are you doing here? And he steps out into the hallway and looks up and down the hallway to see if I brought anybody with me, right? Well, when he stepped out of his apartment, I stepped in. So he turns around, he comes back in. He goes, what's going on, man? Are you still playing? What's going on? Yeah, 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 I'm still playing, man. But listen. I need to talk to you about the Klan. The Klan? Yeah. You remember, right? Well, I was. Why does he question? <laughs> you really want to know? <laughs> okay. The Klan would have a rally on every Labor Day 
on top of Stone Mountain in Georgia. Well, he had been selected by the leader of the Klan group here in Maryland to go to Stone Mountain to represent the Maryland Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. He'd been given some money to go down there, come back and report to the chapter. Well, he decided to take the money and go to WWF to see Hulk Hogan wrestle. So he went to wrestling and spent the money and lied about going to the uh, Klan gathering and he got found out. <laughs> so he got banished from the Klan. All right. <laughs> At least he got to see Hulk Hogan, you know? That was his idol. So he said he'd quit, and he went into this long story. Well, I said, where's all your clan stuff? And he says, well, they came and got it. Apparently, he had not paid off his robe and hood, and they came and repoed it. And I said, do you know Roger Kelly? Yeah, I know Roger. Roger was my grand dragon. In clan terminology, they called the state leader the grand dragon. I asked him to hook me up with the grand dragon. And he said, no, he couldn't do that. And I said, but wait a minute, you, you know, you're, you're out of the clan now. He goes, it doesn't matter, Daryl. Well, I begged and pleaded with him to give me Mr. Kelly's uh, information. Well, 20 minutes later, he finally consented on the condition that I not reveal where I got his home address and his home phone number. He warned me, he said, Daryl, do not go to Roger Kelly's house. Uh, Roger Kelly will kill you. I called my secretary who books my band. Mary worked here out of my house. I had Roger Kelly's phone number. I gave it to her Monday morning when she came down. I said, here, give uh, Roger Kelly a call and tell him you're working for somebody who's writing a book on the Klan. Would he consent to sitting down and being interviewed? Do not tell Mr. Kelly that I'm black unless he asks. If he asks, don't lie to him. But don't allude to it. Don't give him any reason to ask. And so um, I had her call. And um, he agreed. So he set up the meeting for the motel right above the Silver Dollar Lounge. And at 5.15 on a Sunday afternoon, Mary and I got there early. I gave Mary some money and I sent her down the hall to get some soda and put it in the ice bucket so I would be able to offer my guest a beverage. I had no idea what this man was going to do when he saw me. It was he going to freak and attack me because I'm black? Was he gonna say, I'm not talking to you and turn around and leave? Or was he gonna come in and be interviewed like he had agreed to do? Right on time, knock, knock, knock on the door. Mary hops up, runs around the corner and opens the door. In walks the Grand Nighthawk. Nighthawk in clan terminology means bodyguard. He's wearing military camouflage fatigues, the Ku Klux Klan insignia, and on his right hip, he had a gun. I was not armed. My secretary was not armed. Mr. Kelly is walking directly behind this guy in a dark blue suit. The Nighthawk turns the corner, and upon seeing me, he freezes instantly. Mr. Uh, Kelly bumped into his back, and they stumbled around, you know, trying to regain their balance, looking all over the room like, uh-uh, something's wrong here. I get up and I walk over. I said, hi, Mr. Kelly, put my hand out. My name is Daryl Davis. He shook my hand. So far, so good. I said, come on in, come on in. The Nighthawk shook my hand. Mr. Kelly sat down. I'm like, yes, you know, he's going to do it. 
and the Nighthawk stood at attention to his right. Right before I could sit down, Mr. Kelly says to me, Mr. Davis, do you have any form of identification? Yes. And I reached into my wallet and pulled out my driver's license and gave it to him. And he says, oh, you live on uh, Flack Street in Silver Spring. Why is this man reciting my street address? Well, now, that had me a little concerned. But I didn't want to let him know that he had slightly unnerved me or rattled me. But I, but I wanted to let him know that, you know, don't screw around. So I said, yes, Mr. Kelly, that is where I live. And you live at, and I named his house number and his street. We started doing the interview. And everything, you know, was going along smooth. I mean, every now and then, somebody might pound the table with their fists to make a point. Every time Mr. Kelly would say, well, Mr. Davis, the Bible says, you know, I'd reach down into my bag and pull out the Bible and hand it to him to show me where it said blacks and whites had to be separate. Or if my cassette ran out of tape, I'd reach down into the bag and pull out my cassette and, and refresh the, uh, the recorder. Every time I reached down, the Nighthawk would reach up to his gun. A little over an hour into this interview, there was a strange noise kind of like I immediately jumped up out of my chair and slammed my hands on the table. My mind was racing like you know, 90 miles an hour trying to think, what did I just say? What did I just do to cause him to go off and make some weird noise? And all I could hear in the back of my head was that former Klansman saying, Daryl, do not fool with Roger Kelly. Roger Kelly will kill you. And I'm getting ready to come across that table, grab the Nighthawk and Mr. Kelly, and slam them both down to the ground and disarm the Nighthawk. My eyes locked with Roger Kelly's eyes. My eyes were clearly saying, what did you just do? And I could read his eyes. What did you just do? And the Nighthawk had his hand on his gun, looking back and forth between both of us, like, what did either one of y'all just do? Mary... She was over here sitting on top of the dresser. She realized what happened. And then it made that same noise again. Some of the ice cubes in the ice container melted, the ice bucket melted, and the cans of soda shifted. We all began laughing at how ignorant we were. We continued with the interview and there were no more problems. Uh, at the end, I shook their hands and thanked them for their time. And Mr. Kelly gave me uh, one of his clan cards. And um, he said, keep in touch. And I was thinking to myself, I didn't say it, but I was thinking to myself, what? You know, I didn't come here to make friends with the clan. I came here to find out, you know, how can you hate me when you don't know me? And he didn't like me. I mean, he told me as much. On the way back home, I said to Mary in my car, I said, you know, I rather like Roger Kelly. I like him as a person. I do not like what Roger Kelly stands for. But I found that we had more in common than we did in contrast. You know, basically what we had in contrast was how we each felt about race. Other than that, we agreed on, on, on a lot of things in common. We need to get drugs off the street. We need better education for kids. Things like that, you know, we can agree upon. So I said to her, I said, you know what? I will keep in contact with the guy. So whenever I had a gig up in his county, I'd call him and say, hey, man, I'm playing here or playing there. Come on out. He'd come. He'd bring the Nighthawk with him, but he'd come, right? Sometimes I would invite him down here. He'd come down here. He'd sit right over there on the couch, and I'd sit over here in this chair, and we would talk. He'd, he'd bring the Nighthawk. 
The Nighthawk would sit next to him. Sometimes the Nighthawk would twirl his gun on his finger because he's, you know, bored while Mr. Kelly and I talked. Sometimes I would invite over some of my Jewish friends, some of my black friends, some of my other white friends, just to engage Mr. Kelly in conversation with somebody other than me. I didn't want him to think that I was some exception. I want him to talk to other people. After a while, he began coming down here by himself. No Nighthawk. He trusted me that much. After a couple years, he became uh, Imperial Wizard, national leader, Imperial Wizard. He began inviting me to his house. Welcome to this final hour of CNN Sunday Morning. I'm Bob Kane, and today for Miles O'Brien. Good morning to you all. I'm Joey Chen. Friendship can transcend all kinds of boundaries. Just look at us. And two men in Washington area are showing that even an African-American man and a member of the Ku Klux Klan can find common ground. CNN's Carl Rochelle reports. Davis is one of the few African-Americans you will ever find attending a KKK rally. More than attending, he is welcome. I got more respect for that black man than I do you white niggers all out right. there. We get to know one another and we do different things. You know, it's it hasn't changed my views about the Klan, you know, because my views on the Klan has been pretty much cemented in my mind for years. And I believe in separation of the races. I believe that's in the best interest of all races. I'm a far right man to hell and back because I believe in what he stands for and he believes in what I stand for. A lot of times we don't agree with everything, but at least he respects me to sit down and listen to me. And I respect him to sit down and listen to him. The strange relationship of a KKK wizard and his black buddy. He said that he respected me. The Imperial Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. He said, we may not agree on everything, but at least he respects me to sit down and listen to me, and I respect him to sit down and listen to him. The most important thing that I learned was that while you are actively learning about someone else, you are passively teaching them about yourself. All right? So if you have an adversary, an opponent with an opposing point of view, give that person a platform. Allow them to air that point of view regardless of how extreme it may be. And believe me, I've heard some things so extreme at these rallies, it'll cut you to the bone. Give them a platform. You challenge them, but you don't challenge them rudely or violently. You do it politely and intelligently. And when you do things that way, chances are they will reciprocate and give you a platform. So he and I would sit down and listen to one another. Over a period of time, that cement that he talked about, that held his ideas together, began to get cracks in it. And then it began to crumble. And then it fell apart. And then a few years ago, Roger Kelly quit the Ku Klux Klan. He no longer believes today what he said on that videotape. Okay? And when, when he quit the Klan, he gave me his robe and hood. This is the robe of the Imperial Wizard. Wow. When the three Klan leaders here in Maryland, Roger Kelly, Robert White, and Chester Doles, I became friends with each one of them. When the three Klan leaders left the Klan and became friends of mine, that ended the Ku Klux Klan in the state of Maryland. Today, there is no more Ku Klux Klan in the state of Maryland. They've tried to revive it every now and then, but it immediately falls apart. Sometimes. Uh, different clan groups from Pennsylvania or Virginia 
neighboring states, you know, might come in and hold a rally to try to get a chapter started, but it's, it's never taken off. Do you think there's a danger at all when you are up on stage with a, a clan member that there's some sort of like tacit approval happening that he can sort of point to you and be like, hey, this black guy, we're cool, so therefore my separatist beliefs are right? Some of them might feel that way. Yeah, sure. You know, I know where I stand and I never let it, you know, you know, let it be, be questioned. And they know that I do not, I do not approve of, uh, of separatism or supremacy or whatever. But um, I have no problem sitting there, you know, shaking their hands, um, you know, posing for pictures with them. But I maintain my beliefs and I respect their right to express theirs, whether I agree with them or not. In this country, we have the right to hate. We don't have the right to hurt. Have you ever had a case where someone heard about your story or read your book who came up to you and said, I really love what you're doing. And then you talk to them some more and then you were like, no, 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 wait a minute. They don't. They don't really get what I'm what I'm getting at. Is there a case like that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that very same thing happened last summer. I walked into this honky tonk. I was the only black person in that place. When I walked in, people like all of a sudden like, you know, sat sat up straight and like looked at me and like, you know, what's he doing here? Now of course the musicians, they recognized me. They knew me. You know, or they'd ask me when I sat down, hey, you know, you, you want to sit in? And, you know, do a few numbers with us. I said, sure. I got applause. I went back. This guy comes over to me and he says, they said your name is, is Daryl Davis. So you know so-and-so and so-and-so. And he was naming the uh, Imperial Wizard and the Grand Dragon. He says, you know, I quit as well. We got to stick together. I said, yeah. And then he goes on to say, yeah, we got to get these. And he used a derogatory term to, to express uh, uh, Hispanic people. Get them out of here. So you know, he didn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, you know, maybe one race at a time. <laughs> what what about like any like well-meaning white liberals? There are a lot of those. <laughs> and there are a lot of well-meaning black liberals, but you know what? Again, when all they do is sit around and preach to the choir, it does absolutely no good. If you're not a racist, it doesn't do any good for me to meet with you and sit around and talk about how bad racism is. You're very focused on these these very extreme groups. I wonder if there is a danger with focusing on that kind of extreme hate group that allows people to be like, well, that's not me. That's those are those crazy racists that they don't kind of look into themselves. You know? Yeah. Well, we always do that because we always try to separate ourselves from those who are, who are being judged or viewed in a, in a negative light, but they don't start dealing with it until it happens to them. That's human nature. Have you ever gotten criticism from black folks? Or uh, of course, liberals? absolutely. Now, you know, black people who are friends of mine, who know me, understand where I'm coming from. Some black people who have not uh, heard me interviewed or, or who have not read my book, some of them jump to conclusions and prejudge me, just like the Klan. You know, I've been called an Uncle Tom. I've been called an Oreo. Uh, I had one guy from an NAACP branch chew me up one side and down the other saying... You know, we've worked hard to get 10 steps forward. Here you are sitting down with the enemy having dinner, and you're putting us 20 steps back. I pull up my robes and hoods and say, look, this is what I've done to put a dent in racism. I've got robes and hoods hanging in my closet by people who've given up that belief because of my conversations of sitting down to dinner, and, and they gave it up. How many robes and hoods have you collected? 
and then they shut up. That's it for Love and Radio. The show featured Daryl Davis, whose book we link to on our website, loveandradio.org. The episode was produced by myself, Nick Vanderkolk, and Brendan Baker. We are a part of Radiotopia from PRX, which I've been explaining to friends is kind of like an indie music label for podcasts. It's made possible with support from the Knight Foundation and MailChimp, who celebrate creativity, chaos, and teamwork. And don't forget, call the anonymous Love and Radio Secrets hotline, like this listener just did. I'm a soccer mom, but it's not soccer. My kid plays. He plays another sport. But anyway, there is a secret about me that no one in my life knows except for one person that actually worked with me back when I was working a particular job that no one knows that I had. Between the years of 2004 and 2005, I worked as an escort. I'm married now, and not even my husband knows, and it bothers me a lot. So it feels good to be able to say it to people that don't know me and that hopefully aren't judging me. And if anybody else is hearing this on the podcast, You shouldn't judge people for their past decisions because at the time I was a single mom and it was really easy money and it freed me up to spend lots of time with my kids. And as I said, nobody else knew what I was doing because I just said I did internet work. Yeah. To get your own secret off your chest, call 641-715-3900 then 55403 pound thanks for listening